Welcome to City Reach Cumberland's weekly podcast. We hope this message blesses you. For more information about us, you can check us out on the web at cityreachcumberland.com. Okay, so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish a message today that I started three weeks ago. I was going to finish it two weeks ago, and we, we canceled due to weather. And of course, we had uh, Pastor Aaron last week. Who was here last week? That was good, right? That was a good, good word. Uh, just to let you know, next month, I've got a young man coming in that uh, is a pastor. He's, um, I think he was uh, in active addiction for about six or seven years, got his life radically turned around, and he pastors at a church in Bowie, Maryland, and you're going to not want to miss that. I think it's March 14th, just to give you a heads up, if you want to mark your calendar for that. Um, I just promise you'll be blessed when, uh, when you hear, hear him then. So the, the series we started a few weeks ago is called Rock Solid, and it's taken out of Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, so uh, where Jesus talks about two men. And he talks about two men that, that heard what he was teaching. It said that, that one man heard the word, and he applied or did what he heard, and that man was called a wise man. And then another man also heard the same message. He got the same teaching but he did the opposite. He didn't apply what he learned, and that man was called the fool. And it said the wise man built a house, the foolish man built a house, and when the storm came, they both encountered the storm, but when the storm came, the house of the wise man stood, the house of the foolish man didn't. And, and so from that, we're taking this series rock solid, because we're not talking about hammering nails and putting up studs and, and, and doing drywall. We're talking about building a life that will last. And, and you're going to encounter things. You're going to encounter storms of life. It's a reality. Being a born-again Christian does not insulate or isolate you from going through difficult times. But God intends for you to come through that strong. And so we want to look at how do we build a strong life? How do we build a strong foundation? How do we remain solid? And from that teaching, he said that the person that took what he heard and applied it was the one that built a strong house that had a strong foundation and it was the wise man. So over the next few weeks, we're going to take some teachings from the Sermon on the Mount and just some real practical things that we can do to build a strong life. So the message today, uh, pick up, and I'm going to, uh, three points. I covered one three weeks ago, and we're going to go back through uh, points one, two, and three today. The message today is again called Don't Worry. Don't worry, it's taken from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 33. Don't worry. Part 2. And so, if you had notes a few weeks ago, if you were here, or if you didn't, you can write these down now. We're going to look at three things, because what happens is, when we encounter worry, there, there's, some, there's some things we can ask ourselves now, before things occur, just to see what direction we're going in. And so the three things we're going to pull out of this are, what am I seeing? What am I seeing that has to do with your worth or your value? What am I saying that has to do with your words? And what am I seeking that has to do with your wants? What am I seeing? What am I saying? And what am I seeking? So we're going to, let's go ahead and read this passage and then uh, we'll get into uh, those three things. So verse 25 says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air, for they are neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not 
of much more value than they. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So we're not going to talk about this point, but let me just say something about verse 27. So some translations say, which of you, by worrying, can add a cubit to your stature? Some translations say an inch to your height. Or other translations say an hour to your life. And in Luke's version, he says, if you can't do anything with the least, uh, why do you worry about things that are are more important than that. So he's saying that, hey, you can worry all you want, but guess what? It adds nothing to your life. It's of zero value. So I know we spend a lot of time, I'm guilty, right? Has anybody ever spent time worrying about something that never came to pass? I've done it. Matter of fact, I remember 20 years ago when Y2K happened, or actually didn't happen. You know, our business, we spent hours and we formulated plans and, and we had all kinds of flow charts. And we worried and stressed out that the computers were going to shut down on January 1st, 2000. Well, guess what? It, it was a bunch of waste of time. So what happens is when things come, we begin to, to worry about them. And, and Jesus says, hey, that worrying, you can't change how tall you are. Now, if you ask my wife, she says I'm 5'11". If you ask me in the doctor's office, they'll say I'm six foot tall. Kristen says it's the hair. I disagree. <laughs> See, the older I get, the higher I make it. So I stay six feet. I know I was six feet at once, but I can worry about that all day long, but I can't change how tall I am. So it, it's, just a, it's just a pointless exercise. So God says, don't do it. All right, verse 28. He said, so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Verse 31. Next slide. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day, uh, for the day is its own trouble. All right, what is worry? Let's go to the next slide. So worry is like... Uh, I'll just give you a Merriam-Webster de definition. So this is a, di a dictionary definition. It's mental distress. So if you've ever worried about something, it mentally weighs you down. It taxes your brain. It's really like, it, you can feel it. It's a weight. It's a mental distress or agitation resulting from some concern, usually for something impending or anticipated. So it's you having this mental stress, this mental anxiety, agitation for something in the future. And typically something that's negative by nature. And it really weighs opposite to what we call hope or biblical hope in the Bible. So worry is this future anticipation of something negative or something bad. Hope, biblical hope, is a future expectation of something good. So where worry leads you down to this, this, this path of fear and doubt, hope leads you down the path of faith. And, and if you can stop worry now, it'll really help you as, as these things come up in your life. So worry, 
uh, means to take thought, to be anxious. I'll put the Greek word up there for you, to have a distracting care. And I only want to point this out, that it comes from the Greek word merizo, which means to divide or separate. So if you're thinking about building a house, remember the verse that says a house divided cannot what? Can't stand. So a divided house cannot stand. So this thing of, of when you worry, it literally means to have a distracting care uh, or, or something that divides your attention or something that, that, that split, you know, splits your thought process. You think of the book of James. James says a double-minded man is what? Unstable in some of his ways. All of his ways. So you cannot think two different directions and remain stable. You can't build a house when you're worrying about this, but God's wanting you to go this way. Or God's leading you this way and you get distracted over here. And that's what worry does. Worry gets you off the path that God wants you to be taking. And it, it creates division, mental division, division of purpose, division of, of, of your steps you're taking every day. So first thing, first question we want to ask. Next slide. I'm going to go through this fairly quick because we already covered this. What am I seeing? This has to do with yours. So we're not literally talking about what am I seeing with my eyes, but what Jesus does is, as he does a lot of times, he points to something in the natural realm to give us a picture or a thought or an image of something in the spiritual realm. So what's he tell us to look at? He tells us to look at two things. He says, I want you to look at the birds, and I want you to look at the flowers. Because when you look at the birds and look at the flowers, you're going to see some things that are going to help you not to worry. He says, look at the birds. They neither toil nor spin. I'm sorry, that's the, that's the flowers. <laughs> sorry. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor store away in barns. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not, say this, much more, much more valuable than they are? So here he does, he points to something insignificant. He points to, to a bird at that time and said, you could buy two sparrows for how much? One penny. You could buy two birds for a penny back then. And then if you really wanted to get a deal, if you went to Big Lots, at Big Lots they'd sell you five birds for, for two pennies. They'd throw one in for free. So you either get two for a penny or you get five for two pennies. Either way, these birds were worthless. They were, they were literally worth nothing. And you remember that what somebody is willing to pay is what establishes its value. So why was a sparrow only worth a half a penny? Because that's all somebody was willing to pay. How do I establish what a value of a car is? I take it to an auction, people bid, the last bidder establishes the value on that car because that's what he or she is willing to pay. So Jesus points you to the bird and said, hey, I care for the bird. The bird doesn't even do anything, and I take care of the bird that's worthless. Aren't you much more valuable than a bird? So here's the good news. You're worth more than a half a penny. All right? Somewhere between a half a penny and, and, and two pennies, you know. So what are we worth? You're worth what God is willing to pay for you. What did he pay for you? He paid, we sang about it in the second song today, the blood of the lamb, the perfect, sinless, spotless blood of Jesus, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. 
The Lamb of God that shed His blood that was better than the blood of bulls and goats. The blood of the Lamb that, that didn't just cover sin for one year or till the next time you screwed up, that it took it away for all time. The blood of the Lamb that was the very Son of God. That's how much He loves you. That's how much you're worth to Him. You're worth Jesus. So you're more than a penny up to Jesus. That's a pretty good range, right? So he says, I want you to look at the birds because you're worth more than that. You're worth the blood of my son. The next thing he says, I want you to look at what? The flowers. He says, the flowers neither uh, toil nor spin. Even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like, not dressed like one of these. If God clothes the grass of the, grass of the field, which is, say this, here today... And gone when? Gone tomorrow. How long does a flower live? A couple days? If you get your wife, man, if you get her some flowers at Martin's, right? You might prolong them a little bit if you put that little... There's a packet for a reason, right? The packet prolongs the life. I'm just helping you men out. Get your wife's flowers. Goes a long way. Matter of fact, you get to 28 years in, she's like, don't waste money on flowers, just get me jewelry. And I was like, nah. Nah, we're, gonna, we're sticking with flowers, baby. He says, look at the flowers. He said, if God clothes something that only lasts for a day or two days, God cares about the, the insignificant bird. God cares about the short-lived flower. How much more does he care for you that are priceless? You're worth the blood of Jesus. How much more does he care for you that live for eternity? Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no man shall pluck them out of my hand. Never. So your relationship with him is more than a day or two days or a year or even the next 40 or 50 years. It's for eternity. And if he takes care of and cares for a flower that lives for a few days, how much more for you? You're worth it. You're worth it. I think the reason God points or Jesus points back to the Father in both of these examples because I believe most of worry is rooted in an orphan spirit. What's an orphan spirit? First of all, it's a demonic spirit. It's a demonic spirit that tells you that God doesn't care about you. It's a demonic spirit that tells you God couldn't love you. It's a demonic spirit that tells you that, that God may be with you today, but he's not going to be with you tomorrow. So he points you back to number one, to your value and your worth, because when worry, worry really is rooted in that demonic spirit, an orphan spirit, because what's, it, what's that orphan spirit tell you? Because you don't know how much God loves you, or you may not know how long he's going to love you, because maybe your father abandoned you, maybe your mother abandoned you, maybe they gave you up for adoption, maybe you had a childhood that you just can't relate to God. And that, that orphan spirit wants you to think about that and wants you to worry about everything because you couldn't, relate, you couldn't rely on your own parents. Think about this. Well-fathered children are worry-free children. 
Anybody know who Elon Musk is? He's the founder of Tesla. Jeff Bezos. What's he founder of? I guarantee you guys all made him rich again last week. Amazon, right? Those two are back and forth. I don't know who's the wealthiest guy in the world now, but they go back and somewhere around $180 billion. Now, if Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos was your father, would you worry about money? No. I wouldn't have a worry about, I'd be blowing so much. I wouldn't worry about anything. You know, Jesus makes Elon Musk and he makes Jeff Bezos look penniless. <laughs> he makes them look like a pauper. He created everything. He owns everything. This is something I learned from my dad. I used to wonder, how does my dad not worry about stuff? Because I'm, I'm by nature a worrier. And I would see him time and time again. Somebody would say, oh, what do you think? What's going on with the economy? No worry. And, you, and I, I'd hear him do this. He had a guy come to his house once time, and he had a, a house that had stucco on the outside. And this guy, walking around, he's looking at it like this. He'd been there 16 or 17 years, and the guy goes, I don't get it. My dad says, what? He goes, you've been here 16 or 17 years. The stucco should be deteriorating by now. I don't understand this. And I heard my dad say this so many times. He said, you obviously don't know my father. Now, this guy was a bad dude. He was not only a contractor. He owned a strip club, and he, he, he did all kinds of, like, shady, shady stuff. He's like, well, who's your father? And all of a sudden, he's getting nervous, you know? He's like, you obviously don't know my father because my father is very wealthy, my father is very powerful, and my father loves me very much. And the guy's like, well, who's your father? <laughs> and did I ever make him mad? And you know what my dad would use that? He'd use that as an opening to share the gospel with somebody. Because he knew who his father was. And no matter what happened in my dad's life, he didn't have a father. He, in the natural, he had no father. His father abandoned him when he was born, but he learned what it meant to be well-fathered with a capital F. He knew that God loved him, that God cared for him, and no matter what, God would always be there for him. And it was such an example for me. So do I stress about things? Yeah. But I always go back to that. I go back to, what am I seeing? How does God see me? He sees me with worth. He sees me from an eternal perspective. None of this stuff surprises God. So I think God or Jesus here deals with what we see first because what we see eventually comes out of our mouth. Do you remember the verse? I think it's Proverbs 23, 7. It says, as a man thinks where he, in his heart, so is he. So the, if you think about it, you think in pictures, right? If I say apple, how many are seeing A-P-P-L-E, the letters? Probably nobody. You probably pictured a red apple or a green apple or, or maybe a worm coming out of an apple. But you didn't picture the, the letters, you pictured the picture. 
And so what God does is we, when we think, we think in pictures. So often he deals with what we see first. Because what we see in our mind is what is in our heart. So if I start seeing myself the way God sees me, all of a sudden I'm going to get some images on the inside to the point where I'm going to start being confident in the way God sees me. I'm not going to start listening to the things the enemy starts throwing at me. I'm not going to start listening to things people are like, well, what about this? What do you think about this? Did you hear this prophecy? Did you hear that? I know that I know. Not in an arrogant way, but I just am confident in Jesus. Go to the next slide. So the next verse says, it's on what am I saying, having to do with your words. I, I like to, let's see, skip past that. So I like the, uh, I like the King James on this. So you remember the word, uh, bless you, the word worry also means to take a thought. So in the King James it says, therefore, take no thought, what? Saying. Guess how you take a thought? When you say it. See, you're going to have thoughts. You can't control the fact that you're going to have thoughts come around. You know, I've been into grocery store, and I'm just minding my own business, and I just see an 80-year-old lady, and I have a thought, might have just smack her upside the face. <laughs> now, where did that come from? Where did that, I mean, why would I even think that? I love old ladies. I, I, but you have bizarre thoughts. I'm just being real. Now, I'm not going to like act on that thought. That's why when you get those bizarre thoughts, now I'm not going to tell you some of the shadier ones if, as if that's not shady. But that's why Paul tells us, he says, Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. You've got to take those thoughts captive. You've got, you've got to like actually cast them down. And you know what I found? The best way to take a thought captive is to say something. So you can short circuit the thought process by speaking. So you can stop that thought or you can you can enforce that thought. Right. And it all comes right here. So remember we're thinking in pictures. What's Luke chapter 6 verse 45 say? It says, as out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So the way I think, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The more I think wrong things, the more I dwell on worry, the more I don't understand that God loves me from an eternal perspective, that I'm worth the blood of Jesus. I begin to think and worry, and, and all of a sudden, worry builds up in my heart. And guess what comes out? Worry words. I take a thought by saying it. See, when I say a thought, I actually come into agreement with the thought. Did you know God's not worried? God does not worry about anything. So if you have worry thoughts, guess who they did not originate from? God doesn't put worry in your mind because he tells you not to do it. 
He's not going to cause you to do something that he tells you not to do. So if he, you have worry, it didn't come from him. And when I speak worry, when I take a thought by saying, oh, what am I going to wear? What am I going to eat? Where am I going to go to work? How am I going to pay my bill? I'm coming into agreement by my words with that thought that didn't originate from God. See, words have power. Now, I realize some people have taken words and the power of words to the extreme. Matter of fact, so much so, so, so much to the extreme that sometimes we reject the whole notion that my words have power. You know, when God created, He didn't go, How did God create? And God said and God saw. See, God's words are the most creative force on the universe. We're created in his image, therefore our words have some sort of creative ability because we're created in his image. However, I don't believe that our words have creative ability to the extent that God's do. Otherwise, I'd have a G7 Gulfstream jet right now. See, I've tried this. In the name of Jesus, Gulfstream appear. $75 million, 30,000 feet in the air. I could be like A to B. and no, It doesn't work like that. So people will abuse the fact that words have power, although they do. And when we see abuse on a certain thing, sometimes we reject the whole notion. I don't buy all that. But the fact is, God's word says that the power of the tongue, and the, and the tongue is the power of life and death. And probably didn't say in there, I wouldn't believe it, but it's actually in the Bible. It's in Proverbs chapter 18. What's it say? Let's go to the next slide. It said, with the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach will be satisfied. What is the fruit of your mouth? It's not apples and oranges. Words. Your words are the fruit of your mouth. It's what your mouth produces your stomach will be satisfied. He will be satisfied with the product of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So you got to realize that your words are either, are either confirming the worry of the enemy, or your words are confirming the word of God. It's not, and here's where we get it backwards. See, the goal is not to get God to come into agreement with your words. The goal is to get your words in agreement with God. See, too often we try to like, well, I'm going to say this, and God says he's going to do it. Well, if it's in his word, I'll, I'll go that far. See, we got to get our words to line up with what he says. You know why I couldn't, didn't win that billion-dollar lottery ticket two weeks ago? Because I couldn't find it in the Word. I said, lottery ticket manifest. I was already spending the money. I got that. Now I can buy that jet. See, worry is very similar to meditation, just in the reverse. 
God told Moses, actually told Joshua, I take that back, Joshua 1.8 says, The book of the law, this book of the law, shall not depart from your mouth, but in it you shall meditate day in, therein day and night, that you may observe to do all that is contained therein, then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. See, there's this connection between meditation and not departing your mouth. And when I get God's word in my mouth, that's one thing. But when I get the enemy's worries in my mouth, I'm coming into agreement with that. It doesn't, it creates a divided mind. And it further solidifies the lie of the enemy. What's interesting, a lot of times we don't read it, it says life and death is in the power of the tongue and those that love it will eat its fruit. Does anybody know what the next verse is? Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, 22. It's a great Valentine's verse. And he that finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. I don't think it's there by accident. You know why some of you have a bad marriage? Because you got a bad mouth. You know, it says that life and death is in the power of the tongue. The next verse, said, next verse says, he that finds a wife finds a good thing. And what do we do? We go to work and tell our buddy how bad our wife is. Now, ladies, I'm going to talk to you. That goes both ways. <laughs> You're calling all your uh, your girlfriends on the phone. Hey, you won't believe what my husband does. I don't know what he's doing out all night. A lot of times you got it, not every time, but a lot of times you got a bad marriage because your mouth's bad. Sometimes you're in a dead end job because you got a dead end mouth. And I could go on and on. Sometimes maybe your finances are broke because your mouth's broke. See, the truth is, is that life and death is in the power of the tongue. The truth is the enemy sends worry so that you'll begin to get your focus off God, so that your mind's divided, so that you begin to speak and reinforce the things that he's telling you that don't line up with God's word. All of a sudden, it's no wonder things don't work. Finally, number three, what am I seeking? This could be like a whole series on its own, so I'm going to try to like abbreviate. I love this verse. I'll try not to go too far off tangent with it. It says, For after all these things the Gentiles seek, but your heavenly Father knows that you have need. That need means to be uh, in necessity of something to have a want. Again, back to the Father. He circles this thing right back to the Father. Father knows you got need. The Father knows you have wants. The Father knows you're in lack, that you have necessities. That's not, that's a given. He knows. But what he points out here, Jesus says, he says, after all these things, these needs, these wants, do the Gentiles seek. But your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. Then what's he say? He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added added. You remember what worry doesn't do? It doesn't add anything. So it gives you a clue here that it, 
to be added to. You don't do it by worry, you do it by seeking. But he says here, seek first. So first I wanna just tell you that, that when it says seek first, the verb tense, a lot of times when we look at this seek first, we think, and, and, and I've been guilty of this, and I've done this, is that, well, that means I need to seek God and his kingdom. Now, I'm not gonna get into teaching on kingdom today, but essentially the kingdom of God, it's made of two words, king and domain, kingdom. King has to do with his authority. Domain has to do with the realm over which his authority extends. So I'm seeking the king and his kingdom, because you can't have a king without a kingdom without a king. I'm seeking the king and his kingdom over this area where his authority extends. I'm seeking that, his righteousness. This isn't about me doing right, it's his righteousness that comes by faith. So the seeking, and it says seek first, this verb is in the tense of a continual seeking. So a lot of times we see this, well, you know, and we get very religious with this, right? Well, tell me about your, your walk. Well, brother, I, I, I seek the Lord first. And then after that, you know, I, I love my wife, so she's number two. And, and, then, and then after that, you know, is my ministry. And, and then comes number four, it, it is my job. Or whatever your order is. See, the seeking, the tense of this word seek is actually a, 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 a continual seeking. So it's not like seeking first, second, third, fourth, and it talks more about exclusivity than it does priority. So a lot of times we say, well, I'm putting God first and, and my wife second, my ministry third, my job fourth, my kids are maybe seventh or eighth now. They're in there somewhere. But if I'm seeking first, seeking continually, I like the Passion Translation. Let's look at it, next slide. It says, above all, constantly chase after constantly chase after so if i'm constantly seeking and chasing after the kingdom guess what else i don't have time to seek after anything else so i love doing this demonstration so when i dated my wife which was a long time ago she lived in winchester and i lived in cumberland and i could make it to cumberland and winchester in about 47 minutes okay <laughs> Because I was in hot pursuit. I, I, I was pursuing her, right? And, and, if, and it, truth be told, I just wanted to make sure nobody else was getting an advantage over me. So I was trying to protect my territory too. But, but I, I, I was pursuing her. And, and I, I was chasing after her. And, and I would do things to give her evidence of that. But what if I had said... Baby, I just want you to know that you're first in my life. Guess what? You're first. Kelly's second. Autumn's third. Nicole's fourth. All of a sudden, first isn't a great place to be. So God's not looking for first place in your life. He's looking for place. He's looking that you're constantly seeking him and his righteousness above all else to the point where nothing else matters. It's not a first, second, third, fourth. It's exclusivity. I'm constantly pursuing the kingdom. I'm constantly pursuing my wife. I'm not seeking her and then I'm out knocking on doors elsewhere. Thank goodness, right? Thank you. Let's give her a hand. Isn't that great? 
Now I want you to see, I just want you to see a difference quickly between these two words seek, because we read this in the English and it says the Gentiles seek and it tells us to seek, but it's not the same word seek. One, the one that we're supposed to do is the Greek word zeteo, and the one that the Gentiles, when the Gentiles represent those that are outside the kingdom, unsaved people, that word is epizeteo. So here's, what, here's the difference. It says, after all these things, the Gentiles seek. Now, see, okay, hey guys got your, your thinking caps on today, right? Now we're going to look for the difference. The difference. I'm going to give you a hint. To seek for, to inquire for, to search for, to wish for, to clamor for. But seek first the kingdom of God, to seek after, aim at, endeavor, desire, pursue. What's the difference? One is seeking for something. The other is seeking after the kingdom or pursuing the kingdom. And see, what happens a lot of times in Christianity, what happens is, is we mix these two realms unintentionally. And we begin to seek God for things. See, the Gentiles seek for houses. They seek for a car. They seek God for provision. We're to seek God and God exclusively, and He'll take care of it. But what happens a lot of times, we mix the two and, oh, I'm going to seek God for this. And I'm going to seek God for this. And don't knock it and say, well, I'm believing God for a breakthrough. I'm believing God for a miracle. I'm believing God for a, a big check coming to mail. What happened to just believing God? Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't believe God for things. We should have an expectation, but too often the thing we're seeking for becomes the reason we seek God. That sounds like a bit of manipulation to me. I mean, if I only dated my wife for what I could get from her, that doesn't feel so good. Now, when I pursue her, there's benefits of that relationship, and they're really good. I'll just be honest. What happens when a guy pursues a woman for what he can get from her? The minute she doesn't give him what he wants, what does he do? He drops her like a hot potato. See, the same thing can happen in the kingdom. When I seek God for what I can get from him, the minute it doesn't manifest, the tendency is that I quit. Next slide. When you seek God for the benefits, you'll be likely to quit if things don't manifest. Well, don't they always manifest? In a perfect world, yes. But we have an enemy that sometimes runs defense. He gets in and messes things up, but we don't know how to deal with it. There's time when God's trying to provide for you through somebody else, and that person's not obedient to the voice of God to come be the, meet the need in your life, and it doesn't happen because of their disobedience. There's things that mess up. But when our focus is on the four instead of the seeking God, when, when it doesn't happen, 
Just throw in the towel. So you got to see your value that you'll have with God. That God values you infinitely. And if he takes care of a bird, get this, he's a much more God. It says, how much more will he feed you? How much more will he clothe you? You got to see it. And when you begin to see it, all of a sudden when the worry comes, you're not going to be reinforcing the worry with your words. You're not going to be taking the thought by saying it. And number three, what are you seeking? Are you seeking things? Are you seeking God? Or are you seeking God for things? See, when, you, when your motivation's wrong, and it doesn't happen the way you expect it to happen or in the time frame you expect it to happen in, well, I tried that, I tried that seeking the kingdom and it didn't work for me. Well, you probably had the, the court, <laughs> you probably had the cart before the horse. You probably weren't seeking God because he's God. Because he's creator, because he is who he is. You're probably seeking him for what you could get from him. And your heart was wrong. I'm going to give you a couple questions. Well, how do I know if I'm doing it wrong? How do I know? So I'll just give you a couple questions you can ask yourself. Write these down or not. We'll wrap up. How do I know if I'm seeking God for things? Well, first I would say, are, are you are you am I consistent? Am I only seeking God when I have a need? Or am I seeking Him continually? So if the only time I'm seeking God is when I have a need, what? Well, that's obvious, right? Where do you go when you have a need? You go to God. But what about when you don't have a need? Are you seeking God then? So is there a consistency to your pursuit of the kingdom and Jesus? How about this? Your emotions. Are you up and down? Are you up and down? Are you happy and joyful when the bank account's full, but depressed when it's not? When the money comes through, you can, woohoo, praise the Lord, brother. You can shout with the best of them, right? But what about when you're in the in-between time? You got a bad mouth. Oh, man, I tried this. It doesn't work. Ugh. Are you up and down? See, the outcome shouldn't dictate your joy. So you should be happy whether you have it or you don't have it. What did Paul say? He says, I've learned how to be abound. I've learned how to be abased. In every circumstance, I've learned how to be 
content. See, if you're up and down, I can tell you're not content. So you got to get to a point that you say, and, and I want just this isn't what God's like, but God, if you allowed me to have cancer, and I know you don't and won't because that's not who you are, I'd still serve you. And if God, if I went broke, and I know you don't want me to go broke, but if I did, I'd still serve you. You get to the point where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're going into the furnace, and what do they say? God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're still going to serve him. See, I don't fluctuate based on the outcome. One more thing, I'll just give you this, we'll wrap it up, your prayer life. What's your prayer life like? And I don't mean do you have one. Is it all an ask? Is your prayer life all an ask? If I took your prayer life or we wrote it down and we extracted all the things you're asking God to do for you, how much would be left? Would there be any prayer left? You know, prayer is just communion with God. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, I always like to think of this. What did Adam and Eve's prayer life consist of? They didn't have any needs. They didn't even have any clothes. So they weren't asking for clothes. They weren't asking for food. What were they asking for? They were just communing with God. Now it's okay to ask. We're instructed to ask and you shall receive. That's appropriate. But is that all your communication with God is? Because if that's all your prayer life's made up of, then you're probably seeking God for things. All right. Don't worry. Let's just close with that. Can we sing Don't Worry, Be Happy? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. A little UB40. I UB50 now, but... I used to UB40. All right, let's stand up. I want to pray for you guys. If you're dealing with worry, hey, we all deal with it. But the way we react to the thoughts, the images, the situations, God gives us some key elements. Because I want you to see your value that you have to me. I want you to see yourself the way I see you. I want you to start speaking not words of worry, but words of faith. I want you to speak the words that I write. I want you to speak words that line up with my words. And I want you to start seeking me just because I'm me. Not because of what I can do for you. That, that'll happen. He knows what you need. He'll add, those things will happen. But don't make that the reason that you seek God. Father, we just praise your name today. I thank you that you are good, that your goodness never changes. Lord, that you are faithful. Your faithfulness never changes. Lord, you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Father, I just pray that you would let this word sink into our hearts. Father, when the enemy tries to bring situations, images, thoughts, ideas that are not consistent, not congruent with your word, Lord, we cast those down and bring those into the obedience of Christ. Lord, I just speak favor over each person here today. Lord, we just, uh, we just commit their lives to you. Lord, let your blessing rest on them. 
And Lord, help us to stand against the enemy, putting worry in our minds, and just to take a few of these practical points and use them in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if anybody needs specific prayer, you don't know Jesus,